All right, well, we've been going through this journey of from the cradle to the cross, and uh, the first week, so two weeks ago, we looked at specifically the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus, and we compared the birth of Jesus, Jesus being an infant in that lowly manger that we sing about, right? We talked about how that is the equivalence of the Christmas tree Christmas stand, all right? So, so if I venture over to this tree here, and, and we consider all the beautiful trappings of this tree. So we got, the, we got the lights, and we got the ornaments, and we got the star on top. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so pretty. We forget about the Christmas tree stand, right? And we even, we even cover it up, that poor, that poor Christmas tree stand. We don't even want to look at it, let alone think about it, Right? But we talked specifically about how it is without that stand, the tree would just fall over. And so those ornaments and the lights and the star, all that stuff that we ooh and ah about would just be pointless without the stand because it would just be lying on the ground. And so as such, we considered then the birth of Jesus as being the Christmas tree stand. And how it is that without the understanding, acknowledgement, and embrace of the fact that Jesus was God incarnate, God in the flesh, then the cross is pointless. Because without understanding that God became flesh, that it was God who laid in that manger, not just a baby boy, if we don't understand that, then what happens is, is the cross then becomes just a good man dying for a good cause. And that would be pretty sad if for 2,000 years we were worshiping and celebrating just a good man dying for a good cause and we, we staked our eternity on that. But no, we're talking about the God of the universe coming to earth. So then as he hung on that cross, as nails pierced his wrists and his feet, we understand that at any moment he could have taken himself off. But he didn't. Why? Well, because he knew it was the only way for us to have eternity. For us to have eternal life, he had to take on the sins of the world and take that punishment, that punishment that was ours. And so the, the, the Christmas tree stand becomes then the birth of Jesus, understanding that God became flesh. And then the following week, we talked about how Jesus then in his ministry put a stake in the ground and that he said that his reason for coming, his reason for even being here, was to seek and to save the lost, to provide hope for the hopeless, to provide peace for those who have none, and to give joy when before there was despair. So Jesus put his stake in the ground and he said, this is who I am. And all you have to do is stretch out your hand, and I will restore it. So then this, this Sunday, today, we're going to talk about the next journey of this process from the cradle to the cross, and that is the trial of Jesus. So Jesus was with his disciples, and many of us know the story. He was with his disciples, and then he went to the garden, and he, and, and he knew what was to come. He knew that, that the cross was awaiting him. And then one of his disciples, Judas, betrayed him and turned him over to the Roman authorities. And so now Jesus is in this situation where he's been 
made captive, and is about to then be put on trial. But before we do that, I want to just, I want to talk about handcuffs, all right? Now, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand who's been in handcuffs because I don't want to incriminate anybody. But handcuffs are a symbol of enslavement. When we think of when we think of handcuffs, when we look at these, we immediately have those images. They're a, a representation of being unable to be free. That's how they're designed. To keep somebody for as long as, as is necessary in these, in these handcuffs. And specifically, these handcuffs then are built to withstand escape. Now, these are actual you know, police handcuffs. So the only way then to experience release from these handcuffs is with, is with a key. And you see, there are some of us who are here today, ow, who are here today, and we find ourselves in handcuffs such as these. We find, our, find ourselves bound and unable to be free from the enslavement in our lives. And whatever those handcuffs are for you today, for all of us, our immediate impulse when we find ourselves chained up like this is to try to wiggle ourselves free. But it's a futile effort because there's just no getting out of them. And so the next tactic is then to try to ignore that they're even on there in the first place. And we come to church or we're with our friends or with our family or we're just living our lives and we're just pretending like everything's fine. And all the while, we're in these chains that we can't get out of. We can't fool ourselves anymore. And so our final response is to then just accept the hopelessness of ever being freed from these chains, from these handcuffs. But that doesn't have to be the case. You see, you and I, we can be released from the handcuffs that enslave us. But here's the catch. You cannot release yourself from these chains. But there is someone who can. So it was around 30 AD, a long time ago. And Jesus... Jesus had been making waves all throughout the land for the last three years. His words were saturated with love and repentance. And he referred to himself, he actually referred to himself as the Son of God because that's who he was, that's who he is. And to those who truly knew him, there was no questioning that. See, Jesus was innocent. Jesus was the embodiment of innocence. But then one evening, he was arrested and he was thrown into a frenzy of courts and decisions. And this would eventually, it would eventually lead him the next morning before Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of the land. The Romans had basically infiltrated Jerusalem and were now overseeing and ruling over the Jews. And so he stands before Jesus does, Pilate, and this crowd of Jewish witnesses. But here's the thing. It didn't take Pilate long to know that Jesus was innocent. 
In John chapter 18, verse 38, it says that Pilate went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. None. Nothing. And his expectation is that that was going to be enough then to have Jesus release this innocent man. Because how could Pilate possibly sentence an innocent man to death? He didn't want Jesus' blood on his hands. But that's what the Jewish crowd wanted of Jesus. They wanted Jesus sentenced to death. And so Pilate came up with an idea. He thought, well, then if I, if I torture and beat Jesus and then present him again, maybe that will appease the Jewish crowd. Maybe that will appease their desire to see this man die. And so they took Jesus and they, they had him, come on Dan, they had him, they had him processed and brought to a pole that the Roman soldiers put together. Now there is a form of punishment that is described in the Bible that, that the Romans did prior to crucifixion, and that was to scourge. And when someone was scourged, they were whipped, but not just with a leather whip. They had, this whip had strips of, of bone attached to it that when, when it hit the flesh, it would rip the flesh right off the body. And so, so Jesus was attached to this pole, unable to release himself. And he was whipped over and over and over again. He was brought back before the Jewish crowd. And Pilate then presents Jesus thinking again, you know, this would appease them. And this way he wouldn't have to put to death an innocent man, right? But it didn't. The crowd there still wanted Jesus to die. He, Pilate was perplexed. Totally unexpected. But then in a moment he had an idea and it hit him probably like a jolt in the head. He had an idea about how he could get out of this mess. How he could get out of putting to death an innocent man. And that was the Jewish Passover tradition of releasing a prisoner. Now, this was the time of Passover, and that's, that's a very important religious annual tradition for Jewish people, and especially at this time. And every Passover, there was a tradition of releasing a prisoner. And so, so that's what Pilate was going to do. He was going to present another prisoner next to Jesus, one who was clearly guilty, and of course the crowd would want that person and not this innocent Jesus. See, this is, how, this is how Pilate could get as far away as possible from sending an innocent man to his death. The crowd would decide, not him. So then he had to ask himself who he would choose. Well, in the prison, there were three men. There were three men. Now, two of the men were common thieves. I mean, the, the law had finally caught up with them. They had robbed. They, have, they had stole. But now they were in prison. But the third was much more notorious. 
He was a rebel. He was a murderer. I mean, he was the lowest of the lows. So all three men had most likely spent their last night alive, and now they face the morning of what is probably their certain death. And Pilate knew immediately who he was going to choose out of the three men. He was going to choose the rebel, the murderer, the man who caused an insurrection. So Pilate sent his soldiers down to the cell to retrieve this man. And surely Pilate thought the crowd would release Jesus when standing next to a man like this, like Barabbas. It was a foolproof plan. Jesus' innocence would be unmistakable when standing beside Barabbas' obvious guilt. You see, unlike Jesus' innocence, Barabbas was guilty. Barabbas was guilty. There was no question regarding Barabbas' guilt. In Luke 23, 19, it says Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So seeing Barabbas in chains... Seeing him in handcuffs on the dawn of his death would not have surprised anybody. He lived a life and he committed atrocities that necessitated severe punishment. You see, here's the thing. The cross that you wear around your neck, the cross that we see in paintings, the cross that maybe even some of you have tattooed somewhere on your body, There were three crosses that were ready that day. And that cross, that cross was originally supposed to be Barabbas's. That was his cross. That was his cross being prepared as he waited in his cell to die. It was his place to be crucified between two thieves. So Pilate, he sent his guards to retrieve Barabbas. And as Barabbas probably sat in his cell, and he most likely heard the footsteps of the guards coming closer, I bet he was sure that they were bringing him to his death, right? You can imagine then how surprised he must have been as the guards opened the door and Barabbas stood ready to accept his fate. And he was probably told that his potential release was predicated on the wish of the crowd that it would be between him and another man. I mean, you could you can imagine how Barabbas is probably pretty hopeful at this point, right? Because at least he's got a 50-50 chance. So the guards most likely brought him out of the jail cell, and as the darkness gave way to light, he was led to Pilate and the crowd and the sound of the people were most likely growing with each step that he took. And I'm sure that Brabus was probably thinking, there's hope. Maybe I'll get out of this. He maybe thought, I would have. They must have arrested someone really bad if they're bringing me up. But once Barabbas is ultimately led to the vast crowd and his eyes adjust to that light, 
after being in his jail cell for so long, he, he probably turned and he saw a man that he was being compared to and he saw Jesus. And I bet, I bet Barabbas knew. I bet he knew just by looking at Jesus that Jesus was innocent. And I bet he figured out really quickly that this was all just smoke and mirrors. The guards, they position Barabbas on the other side of Pilate, and so there Barabbas stands, Pilate to his right, and beyond him the man that they call Jesus. See, Barabbas most likely knew who Jesus was. Jesus, Jesus had become pretty popular. Either you loved him or you hated him. He probably heard all the stories and maybe even actually had seen Jesus or the people that followed him and talked and heard but I bet, I bet Barabbas mainly saw Jesus as someone who was blind. And I bet he, he probably saw those people that followed Jesus as being led by someone who's blind and thus being blind themselves. Barabbas probably saw Jesus as someone who was giving people false hope. You see, Jesus wasn't rebelling against the oppressive Roman government like Barabbas was. Jesus wasn't inciting true change for the Jewish people. No, Barabbas probably thought of himself as the true rebel. See, it was Barabbas who was taking matters into his own hands, right? And he was doing whatever it took to get the job done, especially if that meant killing Roman citizens along the way. But of course, none of that matters now. Everything's changed for Barabbas, and so every bad decision that he's made has now led him to the very place that now he stands. And in a very real moment, I know I would have felt this way. I'm sure he wished he could have taken it all back. So Pilate raises his hand in order to quiet the crowd because he wants to speak. So Pilate asks the crowd, he says, who do you want? Do you want this man that they call Barabbas, this rebel, this murderer? Or do you want this innocent man here, Jesus? And then somewhere from the back of the crowd, a lone voice shouts out something loud and clear for everyone in attendance to hear, and then... It's as if that voice was an invitation for everybody else to jump in because they began shouting the same thing. Give us Barabbas. I bet, I bet Barabbas was pretty confused. I mean, he probably wondered to himself what in the world that they meant by give us Barabbas. And this had to have been very confusing and unexpected to Pilate. This was not how he was thinking this plan was going to go. So a confused and hesitant Pilate stepped forward and once again raised his hand to quiet the crowd. Pilate, he turns to Jesus and then he looks back at the crowd and he says, well, what then of Jesus? And this time the answer was sudden. It didn't grow from a single voice, 
but came back with a deafening noise all at once, two words over and over and over again, crucify him. Crucify him, they shouted. So the guards, they, you know, they came over to Barabbas. You know, I bet he was so used to their presence that probably some fear and anger entered into him as the guards came closer. But instead of taking Barabbas away like he was so used to them doing, they reached down and they grabbed his wrist and one of the guards grabbed a key from his belt and proceeded to unlock those chains that held his wrists together. And I bet then Barabbas probably felt a force push him from behind. And you can imagine that as he staggered towards the top of the steps and he turned to see the guard who had released him from his chains, he could hear the guard say, go. Then quickly a wave of Roman soldiers swarmed around Jesus and the chains that were just a moment ago around the wrists of Barabbas are now being placed on the wrists of Jesus. They then grab Jesus and forcefully pull him away. And Barabbas finds himself at the bottom of the stairs, and he's now with the crowd, one of the people, and free. The Bible doesn't speak a lot about Barabbas, but historical tradition states that Barabbas stayed in Jerusalem. And as such, it's safe to say that he probably watched as Jesus carried his cross through the city streets. And he most likely watched as Jesus was placed on the cross and the nails were hammered into his feet and his wrists. And he most likely watched as the cross was lifted into place. And he most likely watched as Jesus hung in agony and eventually died. And I can't help but wonder because I would think this if I were him. That as Barabbas witnessed this, he probably was thinking, that, that was my cross. I was supposed to be on that cross. See, Barabbas deserved death. He had been condemned. His punishment had been secured. It was inevitable. And all hope was lost. But someone took his place. An innocent man, a man that had absolutely no business standing in front of that crowd that day being tried for reasons absurd. You see, I am Barabbas. I am Barabbas. The things that I've done, the words that I've said that have hurt others, the things and choices that I've made to secure my wants, and my wishes. You see, like Barabbas, I stood condemned. I 
My punishment had been secured and all hope was lost. But in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, someone, someone took my place. An innocent man. A man that had absolutely no business standing in front of that crowd. And like Barabbas, some of you are trying to live your lives and saving yourself in vain. You fight and you claw your way through life, but with each passing moment and day and month and year, you lose more and more hope. And before you know it, you begin to feel the presence of chains like this around your wrists. All hope is gone and you're condemned and your fate is sealed. You cannot save yourself. See, just like Barabbas, you can try all you want to release yourself from these chains. But it's a futile effort because there's just no getting out of them. You need to stop. Because listen to the crowd. Can you hear what they're saying? Give us Barabbas. That's you. That's me. But what about Jesus? What about this innocent man that's standing next to you? Well, the crowd yells, crucify him. Jesus wasn't a victim. Jesus didn't die against his will. And it wasn't the crowd that condemned him. It wasn't the Jewish authorities. It wasn't even Pilate. Now Jesus willingly took our place. He took it. It wasn't forced upon him. He took it. We have to stop trying to do this on our own. Dan, whatever these handcuffs are that that you find around your wrists today, you can't release yourself from them. The only way that you can be released is through the sacrifice that Christ became on the cross that day. And all that he's asking you to do is to put out your wrists so that he can place those on his. We need to stop thinking that we can get ourselves out of this mess that we're in. Because you can try to release yourself from the chains that enslave you. You can pull and you can yank and you can yell at the top of your lungs. But no matter how hard you try, you will never, ever, ever be able to release yourself from these chains. Do you hear that? That that sound, that sound is, is the cross that's being prepared for you while you wait in your cell for punishment. But then Jesus steps in. He says, no, that's that's my cross. 
that thing that's enslaved you in chains, those are my chains. I will take that cross. It's as simple and as profound as that. No strings attached. And all you need to do is allow those chains to be taken off and put on the wrists of Jesus and there's no need to fight anymore because Jesus has willingly, lovingly, and has forever taken your place. That That's the story of Christmas. Father, today, some of us in this room, we've been trying desperately for who knows how long to release us ourselves from these chains that, that bind us, these chains that have been around our wrists for a long time. I pray today, Lord, that those of us who find ourselves enshackled and enslaved by those chains, Lord, I pray that we would stop trying to save ourselves and instead allow those chains to be taken off our wrists and then willingly be placed on yours. And as we consider the sacrifice and the tremendous love that was displayed on the cross, that we would give you all of our thanks and all of our praise this Christmas and that it would be sweetness to your ears. We pray this in your name. Amen.